This is the word of the Lord. When Ephraim spoke, there was trembling. He was exalted in Israel, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And now they sin more and more and make for themselves metal images, idols skillfully made of their silver, all of them the work of craftsmen. It is said of them, those who offer human sacrifices kiss calves. Therefore, they shall be like the morning mist or like the dew that goes away early, like the chaff that swirls from the threshing floor or like smoke from a window. But I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. You know no God but me, and besides me there is no Savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. But when they had grazed, they became full. They were filled, and their hearts was lifted up. Therefore they forgot me. So I am to them like a lion, like a leopard. I will lurk beside the way. I will fall upon them like a bear robbed of her cubs. I will tear open their breast. And there I will devour them like a lion, as a wild beast would rip them open. He destroys you, O Israel, for you are against me, against your helper. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are all your rulers, those of whom you said, Give me a king and prince? I gave you a king in my anger, and I took him away in my wrath. The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. The pangs of childbirth come for him, but he is an unwise son, for at the right time he does not present himself at the opening of the womb. Shall I ransom them from the power of Sheol? Shall I redeem them from death? O oh, death, where are your plagues? O oh, Sheol, where is your sting? Compassion is hidden from my eyes. Though he may flourish among his brothers, the east wind, the wind of the Lord, shall come, rising from the wilderness, and his fountain shall dry up. His spring shall be parched. It shall strip his treasury of every precious thing. Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. Grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. We are coming to the conclusion of Hosea and this week is deep sigh of relief the last message of judgment in the book of Hosea chapter 14 is a message a plea of hope and repentance uh, and you may be saying thank you that we're getting to the end of Hosea we have been going for weeks and weeks and weeks in Hosea with this message of judgment and I think it, it can be hard it, I know it can be hard preparing a message of judgment from week to week uh, Partly, for practical reasons, how do you make the message of judgment fresh each week that people want to listen to it? Uh, partially that I'm, it's wearing on us. Partially that I'm convicted of my own sin from week to week as I consider the judgment of God as we rebel against him. Perhaps the same is true for you. But we don't like the message of judgment. We don't like being told that there's a judgment. We don't like hearing the message of judgment, Because judgment tells us there's someone greater than us, one who judges us. Judgment tells us that we're accountable to something. Judgment tells us we're wrong, and I hate to be wrong. Oh, my wife giggles. And my mom. 
no matter what age we are, we desire to be right. Come to my home sometime and, and let me tell my son no when he asks for a piece of candy. The wonderful thing about a three-year-old is the three-year-old doesn't hide anything from you. So when I tell my son no, I, you cannot have candy, his response is to throw himself on the floor and go, I want candy. And he pounds his hands and he cries. And the only difference between me and my three-year-old son is that I've learned to hide the pounding and screaming, right? And that's true of all of us because we don't like to be told no. We don't like to be told that we're wrong. The reality is that the message of judgment is one that we need. It reminds us that there's something greater than us. And this is both an amazing and terrible thing because it means that we're accountable to someone, but it also means that in that someone we find provision in our rebellion. It reminds us that we can and often are wrong, that we must acknowledge our own fault even when we don't want to. It means that we have to humbly return to the one who brings that judgment. Because this is the problem with Ephraim. Ephraim, who is Israel at this point, it's a, Hosea uses these words fluidly, Judah, Ephraim, Israel. They had forgotten their God. They had become so puffed up in themselves, in their own rightness, in their own prosperity, in their own self-justification, that they no longer needed God. They had made themselves great. They would continue to do so through whatever God they could find, through whatever security and nation they could find, through whatever material gain. Israel, Ephraim, would continue to be great. In chapter 13, we have some of the harshest message of judgment we've seen in the whole book of Hosea. The language here is very startling, it's very staggering, it's very necessary. So as we come to our text this morning, I want us to see three things. We're going to see fleeting Ephraim, ferocious Yahweh, and fickle rulers. Fleeting Ephraim, ferocious Yahweh, and fickle rulers. Let's begin by looking at fleeting Ephraim. We begin chapter 13 by, we find Ephraim exalting in itself. And again, we don't see a new topic here. It's still the message of judgment that's going on here. But we see Ephraim boasting in its essence is sinfulness. And because of their boasting, because of their exalting in their guilt... Death comes, but he incurred guilt through Baal and died. And we know this is not a literal destruction of the people. It's almost as if they're saying, and they were as good as dead. It's the expression we use today. They incurred guilt and they were as good as dead. There is a crisis among the people. They have rebelled against God. And Hosea fleshes out how they've done this. They've made idols for themselves. Metal images, idols skillfully made of silver. They have made sacrifices. 
to these idols. In essence, he rebukes them of the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make graven images. They were guilty of these things. And their guilt is bringing curse upon the people. They were encouraged. The leaders were encouraging these people to sacrifice to these graven images, to these other false gods. And because of this, they will be fleeting. He gives three similes here, analogies for how fleeting they will be. He said they'll be like morning mist or dew that goes away early or chaff that swirls from the fleshing floor or smoke from a window. I guess it's four. And each of these things, usually in the morning, if you come in this foggy outside, what do they say? Just wait. What's going to happen? It's going to burn off, right? If you go out in the morning, there may be dew on the ground, but what will happen to that dew quickly? When the sun comes out, it's going to evaporate off, isn't it? It's going to dry up. If you ever, of course, we don't, the chaff, the chaff in a, uh, on, the, on the threshing floor is a little bit different from us, but that was, that's how they used to thresh. They would throw the wheat up in the air and all the chaff would blow away and the good wheat would fall to the ground. That's the image here, that it'll go away with the wind or as smoke comes from a window. You, you can imagine if you go out, I'm sure if you go outside right now, you go find a chimney. It's got smoke coming out of the chimney right now, right? And as soon as that smoke gets just above the chimney, where, where's it go? You no longer see it, right? The wind mixes and it's, it's gone. He says, this is what you are, Israel. You are something that is fleeting, that you may see evidence of right before your eyes, but it quickly goes away. Their idolatry, these idolaters, they will come to an end. They are fleeting. And the point that Hosea is, is making is very clear. If you follow after idols, if you make idols for yourself, if you worship them, it only brings death. Nothing else can come from the making and worshiping of idols. They are empty and they are useless. And this is no less true for us today. And this is a theme that's run throughout Hosea that the people have built for themselves idols. And we have over the weeks talked about the idols of our own hearts. We have been reminded that as we build them and we make them and we follow after them, that they cannot fill us. They cannot satisfy us. They will only bring destruction upon us. No matter what they are, from pride to lust to anger, even good things that we make family and work, if we make something an idol, it will not satisfy us. Idols are fleeting in nature. When you worship something that is created and not the creator, it will not last. They will not satisfy like dew in the morning, like mist in the air, they will go away. They will quickly burn up. Ephraim, in their security, what they thought was security, in their boldness, thought they would last forever, but they were fleeting. And why were they fleeting? Because Yahweh, he is ferocious. 
And he begins here in verse 4, and I, there's this interesting juxtaposition as he uh, comes and he, he says, you've broken the first two commandments. And then he uses basically, if you go read Exodus 20, this is how he begins the Ten Commandments. He says, but I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. That's almost exactly word for word the introduction to the Ten Commandments. And he says, you know no God but me. And besides me, there is no savior. It was I who knew you in the wilderness, in the land of drought. There's an intimacy here in the word new. There's a, a connectedness, this covenantal connectedness. He says, I knew you and you were to be faithful me, faithful to me, even as a spouse is faithful to his wife. It was to be exclusive. But what happened? You grazed, you became full, and you became puffed up in yourself in essence. He said, I blessed you, you ate of my abundance, you became, as in my household, when we are full, my children will often say, because of their, my wife's dad, their fat was happy. That's what he says when he's full, my fat is happy. Their fat was happy. And they forgot the one who provided for their sustenance. They forgot him. They were filled up and they forgot him. And as they forgot him, they forsook him. He says, now I'm going to come at you like a beast. It's interesting because in the wilderness, God was about the business of protecting them from predators. But now he becomes the predator of the people. There's several images that are used here. A lion, a leopard. I think one of the most poignant is that of the, the mother bear, right? There's an expression, I'm sure most of you heard, you don't get it between a mother bear and her cubs, right? Why? Well, because mother bear will rip you apart. Mother bear does not like, and there's even been known that mother bears have taken on male grizzlies much bigger than themselves when those, because male grizzlies will come eat cubs. That's just a little fun fact there for you. And mother bear does not like that. But I, I love this image because it also gives us something, tells us something about our God. It, it, it's not simply that he comes in destruction. It's, he comes in destruction over loss. His cub has been removed. The people have done this. They have removed themselves and he will come like a predator. Yes, he's going to use Assyria to carry it out. But make no mistake, it is God who brings Assyria to the people. He destroys you. Verse 9 says, O Israel, it is an utter destruction of the people and their rebellion. He is in rage over the loss of his people. He was their savior. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land. And they began to rest in their own efforts, in their own accomplishments. They boasted in self. 
I love the Narnia stories. I've always loved the Narnia stories. My dad, who's here this morning, read me the Narnia stories as, as a young child. I love the Narnia stories. And in the, well, depending on how you account it, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the first or second book, um, at one point, Susan, the youngest of the four uh, children, is talking to Mr. Beaver. Yes, Mr. Beaver. Beavers can talk in Narnia. And they're talking about Aslan, the great lion, the Christ figure. And it says, Aslan is a lion, Mr. Beaver says. The lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? <clears throat> I would feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe? <clears throat> said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And here's the thing that we cannot fail to forget about our God. He is not safe. He's safe in the sense that he's good to his people as they come in repentance. <clears throat> but he is a lion. And he brings destruction on those who would rebel against him, who would worship other gods. He comes to destroy. He will come in rage over the loss of his own. You don't come between a mama bear and her cubs. It's just not wise. The same will be for all those who reject God. He is not safe for those who reject him. His judgment will come with vicious anger. And again, as you read through 13, the message of judgment is startling. At one point, he says, I cannot. Compassion, he says in 14, is hidden from my eyes. And of course, expressions like this are used in, in the Old Testament, particularly very often, where we are, apply our own reasoning to God, or God uses our own reasoning and applies it to himself. And it's not that God doesn't know he's going to bring compassion. But at the same time, even as the compassion of God will come next week, even as the offer of return is, comes next week, there's something in the way he phrases this to get our attention to saying, I want you to understand something. My anger and judgment is real. My anger and judgment is boundless. This, this compassion is hidden from my eyes. You must turn from what you're doing and turn to me. The problem is they've followed after their kings and rulers. This is what he says, starting in verse 10. Where now is your king to save you in all your cities? Where are your rulers, those whom you said, give us kings and princes? Because this is the problem. Israel, go all the way back to the first king, Saul. They wanted to look like the nations. Give us a king that we may look like the nations. They wanted security, but these rulers were fickle. He says, where now are your kings to save you? Where are your rulers and judges, your princes and officials? Now that Yahweh's judgment has come upon you, what good are they doing you? They thought they needed strong leaders. So they sought them, but they sought them in the wrong places instead of coming to Yahweh and relying and trusting on him. They either went to local men or they went to nations. 
they have failed and their sin, their iniquity is bound up. He says in verse 12, the iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is kept in store. In essence, he says, all your sin, judgment is coming upon you. There's this interesting picture here. He compares Israel to a child, an unwise child. In essence, he says, you're, you're like this. You're like a child in a mother's womb. When the womb presents itself, basically when it's time to come out, and the child says, nah, nope. And, and, and the result of this ends up being death, either for child or mother, both. He says, you're an unwise child. It, of course, again here, you know, you're not... There's a, a sense in when the child is in the womb, he's not making a concept choice, conscious choice probably not to come out. But he's saying, Israel, that's what you're like. You're in the womb. You understand that destruction could come upon you, and you're choosing to sit in this place where you think it's safe, you think it's secure, but in reality, it's going to kill you. You failed. You're unwise. And I will not step in and save you. Because compassion is hidden from me. There are several word pairs that are used here. Sheol and death, plague and destruction. The lack of ransom, the lack of redemption. All of it shows the inevitability of judgment that is coming, that will come upon Israel And we know, we get to know now that it's not his last word. Compassion is coming. But for now, it's it's judgment. Yahweh will come like this east wind, this east wind, which is a description of a dry, hot wind that scorches things in its path, that dries up things in its path. And then he concludes... 16, Samaria shall bear her guilt. This is interestingly, this is the first time Samaria is coming to the picture, and you might go, well, what's Samaria talking about? Samaria is, is the capital of Ephraim. It's the same way in which oftentimes in the Old Testament, you'll have Jerusalem used talking about Israel. It's the same thing here. Don't get lost in the fact that Samaria is being popped up here, but Samaria shall bear her guilt because she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces, and their pregnant women ripped open again a startling startling picture of judgment as she has broken her covenant responsibility as she is the nation has engaged in rebellion and the result will be the destruction of her children death will come there will be assaulted by hostile forces and the last word here in, in, in Hosea as before we move into 14 it's a word of judgment And it's a harsh, harsh message. But thankfully, it's not the last message of the book. But we're left with this conclusion. No matter how much we think we're flourishing, and surely the world around us thinks it's safe, it continues to live however it wants, it mocks God to his face, and they rebel against him, The message is this, death will come. It cannot be hidden from, it cannot be avoided. And the same is coming for those who claim to be the people of God 
and yet are living in rebellion. This was Israel because you, you have to remember, chapter 13 is not addressed to the world. It's addressed to the church. Put quotes there, right? It's addressed to those who call themselves the people of God, but are actually living however they want to live. Those who think they're following after him, but they're only seeking after self. Destruction will come. It'll come like a dry wind that destroys. It's a startling message of judgment. And I'll tease next week. I hope you come back because the conclusion of Hosea is a, is a message of hope. It's a message, of, a call to repentance. But as we end this section on judgment, we have to be reminded that we cannot be fleeting in our standing before God. We have to know who we are before him. We cannot be like this wind or, or this, this dew, this mist that is just blown away. Because if that's all how we are before him, if that's our relationship before him, he will come in ferociousness. He will leave us undone. He will tear us apart. We will be left in judgment. And we cannot be fickle. Going this way and that with the winds of the wind, we must rest firm in God. He is our sure and firm foundation. We don't like... You, you, you may hear some people in the church, people in the church even, who will say something like this. People who go to church, I should say that. I worship the God of the New Testament. I don't worship the God of the Old Testament. And at the end of the day, what they're saying is, I like Jesus because Jesus comes in and says, love your neighbor. He offers grace. He offers mercy. And what they're saying is, I don't like the God of the Old Testament because he's a mean God. I don't like that mean God. And what they're failing to see, and I think what we can be tempted to fail to see is, that if you look at the Old Testament, there's always that message of repentance, isn't there? But we have to understand something about our God. That our God is a God of justice. That our God is a God of holiness. We often put ourselves in this position and go, well, how could God be so mean? And what we are failing to do is, is acknowledge our standing before him. We are a unjust and an unholy people. We are a people who have sinned against him. We have broken his standard, his rule. We have lived in rebellion. It's funny. Because I often will, and you can ask me, I often say, well, why don't the kids get it? But it, it, what's funny to me is, is I don't get it either, right? We often don't get it. Like, we get in trouble, or my children will get in trouble, and then they'll act like, well, why are you so mad? We do the same thing with God. We live in rebellion against God, and then we look at him and go, why are you so mad? And I often look at my children and say, don't you understand? This is the standard, and you're failing to the standard. And, this, and God does the same to us. Don't you understand? This is the standard, and you're failing the standard. And when you fail the standard, judgment comes. But none of us can hold the standard, can we? 
None of us can hold the standard. Christ comes. He holds the standard. That's the, the message of salvation here. He even says this early on. I, I was a savior to you, Israel. And he will be a savior for us as well, to all those who come in faith and repentance. We're about to end the service and we're about to come to this table. This is what this table is a reminder of. You and yourself. You are at enmity with God. And there was nothing you could do about that enmity. But Christ came and he satisfied the wrath of God for you. The wrath that is talked about here in this text, the wrath of, of, a, of a ferocious lion, of a bear upon his people, Jesus comes and satisfies that wrath. What does that mean that he satisfies that wrath? It means this. God looked upon his son. It's not that that judgment went away. It's that it was executed on his own son. That ferociousness that's talked about here that was put upon Christ so that we can now come and say this is my body broken for you this is my blood poured out for you so that you might be reconciled to your father in heaven it's the, the wonder and beauty of the gospel that we can go and we can look at texts of judgment and our response for those of us who are in Christ should be thanks be to God because that judgment is not executed on me. That judgment was executed on my Savior on the cross. And now I have hope and I have life and I have light in him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this word of judgment because even in judgment we see the cross where the ultimate judgment was poured out upon your own son. Lord, it is a mystery at times and it is a wonder and it is hard for us to altogether understand and comprehend. But would we see the goodness of Jesus even in this? In all that we do, we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.